0: Hi there, local citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, coming to you from Brooklyn, New York, and my guest is in Nigeria, which I'm happy to be hosting today. She is an innovative, pragmatic, and result-oriented professional helping to improve wellness with the goal of improving life expectancy and reducing health illiteracy through her organization, Live Well Initiative, or LWI. As CEO and first vice chairman of LWI, which is a nonprofit public health NGO, her vision is to increase the life expectancy of Africans to age 70 by the year 2030. Let's hope she does that. Mrs. BC Bright, welcome to the podcast.
1: Oh, well, hi, Florence, Adu. do. It's a privilege and pleasure to be here. I feel highly honored to be here and I'm happy to here. Yeah, thank you.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. So let's just get started. Tell us where are you from,
1: where are you local,
0: and what is your craft?
1: Thank you. My name is Bisi Bryce. I'm from Lagos, Nigeria. Well, here in Nigeria, we have three major tribes. I am Yoruba. We have the Yorubas, the Igbo, and the houses, and then we have over 200 other tribes. But I belong to one of the the major tribe, So I'm Yoruba from Nigeria, but I'm, I am Yoruba by marriage and also by birth. But uh, my my original hometown is a place called Elisha in Oyo, Oyo State, Osho State, Nigeria. It, we used to I used to be an indigenous of Oyo State, but the, the, the state was broken into two, and so I'm now from Osho State. Uh, Nigeria, but that originally, and then by marriage, come from Lagos. Here yeah, in Nigeria, you claim your marital.
0: <laughs> okay, I have a friend who just started oh, started his farm there, so it's nice to see that connection. And where are you local?
1: I live and work in
0: Lagos. Okay, and what would you describe as your craft? Yes, um,
1: I am a clinical pharmacist by profession, and also a public health practitioner. So my craft is uh, a public, I would call myself a public health pharmacist, because um, I combine two professions in the health field.
0: Let's jump right into the conversation. So you're a pharmacist by training, you're a health professional. What attracted you to the health sector?
1: Yes, right from childhood, I always had this um, philanthropic heart, you know, I I remember when I was a growing child, my Dad won't punish me because I sneaked out of the house to go and um, help the woman who just had twin babies to help carry the babies, take care of them and so I've always loved children, I've always had this philanthropic So right from a child, childhood, from my childhood days, I knew that I would want to, to go into one of the philanthropic uh, or humanitarian professions. And then um, as I grew older, I started being drawn towards doing something in the health system, and then um, when it came to career counselling, my dad would encourage me to either read pharmacy or dentistry, because he would say, if you read medicine, you can still have humanity, but you can be called upon any time, whereas if you read dentistry or pharmacy, you can still have humanity, but you would have some time for yourself, so, I decided
0: to go for either pharmacy okay. okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. And so from your studies you did you work directly in the pharmacy in the pharmacy world, basically, like in a pharmacy. Is that how you first started to actually interact with people in the health space?
1: Yes. So um yeah, so I ended up reading pharmacy and then um right from Right from pharmacy school, I, I started interacting with people and I, I really liked pharmacy because um, of the fact that you could from scratch formulate a medication and, um, and see to it that people get well when they're taking such medications and so on. And then we, would, we always had our industrial attachments and clinical attachments and so we had experience with patients with patients even before I got my full qualification. So that really attracted me to the profession. And uh, I've never once regretted it being a pharmacist. But I, I also wanted to do a little more. And so that was why I went for a master's in public health so that I could get closer to the grassroots population, which I couldn't really reach um, directly as a pharmacist, you know, unless we came to me community or in the hospital, I wanted to go into the community instead of the patient coming from their home to the space. And so I went in to do public health. Um, and I also did, um, after reading pharmacy, I went to specialise in clinical pharmacy. And then I, I went on to do a mm-hmm. public health. So that's where mm-hmm. I am now. <laughs> and um, it's like I've been able to cover the areas I wanted. Mm-hmm. So I feel quite happy doing what
0: I'm doing now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So where did you study for your master's? Did you stay in Nigeria? Did you move abroad?
1: I read my first degree here in Nigeria, um, and I got a bachelor's degree in pharmacy, with second class or not. And then I went on to do a fellowship, which is a postgraduate diploma in, in clinical pharmacy. It's, uh, the fellowship would take you four to six years who graduate after the first is returned and uh, I earned that in six years after my first degree. I, I also earned that here, studying here in Lagos, Nigeria, but it was from the West African Food Study College of Pharmacy, which is an institution run by the Anglophone West African um, government, uh, the ECOWAS, uh, or the West African Health uh, Organization. So, it's run by the governments of the Gambia, Nigeria, Ghana, Sierra Leone, Liberia, and um, it, is, um, it is in affiliation with the Francophone partners. So, six, six West African Anglophone countries in partnership with the Francophone, but the, the, this particular college is run strictly by the Anglophone, under the West African Health Organization, and then the Francophones also mm. have their own, mm. also under okay. the West African Health Organization. So I got my fellowship there, and the West African Health Organization actually runs four colleges. We have the West African College of Surgeons, the West African um, College of Physicians, the West African College of Nursing, and the West African mm. Health College. Um, so that's where I earned my fellowship diploma. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a few years later, I went to Zimbabwe to to be a in Zimbabwe, where I got a master's. Mm public mm-hmm, health. Mm-hmm. Even though the fellowship was rated higher than the master's, I still went to do a master's in public health because I wanted to have more knowledge in public health and, you know, a kind of licensure that would take me into blighted communities and so on I wanted.
0: So how did you find studying in Zimbabwe? Studying in
1: Zimbabwe was quite good. Actually, I, I didn't really go to Zimbabwe to study, to study but at that time, my spouse was on. A mm-hmm. thing to that country, and so I went there with him and, and family. And um, it, it, although it was happened times, I found it quite good. And I I also did a, the management course. You know, I just wanted to study what I could. And um, the 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 MPh program in Zimbabwe was quite lengthy, and uh, we they, they had some. Um, uh, you know a few issues with uh, <laughs> the politics right the exactly time. i i actually got my i got my mph certificate yes <laughs> the mph degree they had the mph degree, but i got the MPH certificate but i loved it there and i made a lot of friends and i'm still in touch with some of my friends that i made okay when I okay was there. interesting so was the program
0: quite pan-african
1: yes the the, the masters in public health program very African. In fact, I, I loved it because with the MCH you had to do several research projects. You had to go on mm-hmm. field practice, experience. You had to um, travel to the rural areas and go into the fields and go into the villages. So mm-hmm. I really loved that aspect of it. It made me have a good feel mm-hmm. of the country. So it, it, it was a very good mm-hmm. experience for me. And it made me understand rural rural health better. I did my project in cardiovascular health that they have well, I mean, vessels, even you know, hypertension, diabetes, and so on. And we had real practical experience, we could go into the villages. I was really surprised I saw that the government would buy kids for the even for the villagers where their literate children could help them check their blood pressure and so on. I was really impressed. Interesting. Interesting. Because it was a very good experience for me. It was a very good experience. I can imagine. I'm so
0: then doing your practical work there and and achieving your, your MPH and then coming back to Nigeria to conceivably do similar types of work, what are some of the contrasting features of working in the field there versus working in the field in in Nigeria.
1: Yes, although they're both African countries, I'll first of all talk about the similarities so that I can point out the contrast. The similarities I found were that um, in terms of the African tradition, the respect for the elderly and all that, that was quite um, well manifested in, in those communities in Zimbabwe, despite all the foreign influences and all that. So having said that, I noticed the first major thing I noticed that was a very sharp difference between Zimbabwe and here is the fact that I noticed a lot of westernization in the villages, which we don't really have here. Our villages are still as simple and plain as they were. You won't find a villager in Nigeria saying, it's tea time, I want to drink tea. But over there, even in the villages, they know it's tea time and so on. So. That really surprised me, you know. So we would go on a, on a field project, a public health project, and tea time and the villagers are having tea. So you either have to wait a bit, wait a while till they're done with their tea time and all that. So I noticed a lot of westernization of culture, even in the villages. I think, I, I may be wrong, but I think it's because of the Fact that they had extended farms and a lot of westernized farms so maybe the mm-hmm. farming mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The, the culture went into the farming thing and so spread even into the rural areas but is that is just a speculation i wouldn't really know why so that's the first thing i noticed the second thing i noticed is that like i said the government would buy kids like a blood pressure measuring kids self-monitoring kids for the patient, and the patient now have to keep a record and then bring it with them to the hospital, I mean, to the clinic or, you know, the, uh, their next appointment. And I noticed that um, even if that parent or the person who is living with chronic disease is not literate, there'll be somebody who is literate enough to keep those records for them. We also have that hair, but it is not that well done here. And then we don't really have government buying individual kits for people in villages unless there is a CSO, an NGO that is distributing kids and so So that's one other thing I find very, I found very different. <laughs> yes, and of course their food, their food is different. Okay, interesting. We have a lot of variety of food, but they love, they love the satsa, satsa and rice. That's the staple food. There. You, said, you said they love what? <laughs> satsa and rape. The satsa is the meal, and then the rape is the leaf, the leaf. Their the foods are very different from West African food. Right, right. You know, in, in West Africa, you have the fried plantain, you have the jollof, rice, right? They have quite a variety, but they eat salsa and rice. They love it. They love it. Okay.
0: Do they also, I, I know that in the East versus the West, the spices very differently. Yes.
1: We, the, the, in, in West Africa, we, yes, we eat spicy food. Over there, they don't like it. Spicy at all. Right, right, right. They don't like it spicy. <laughs> But if you want it spicy, they have these uh, slim green peppers that you could just chew, you bite, you bite, and it gives you a bit of, you know, spicy, hot taste. You can bite that with your satsang. <laughs> you know, that's how they. But they love it. I, I, I made a lot of friends and they, they love them. Just like we love our new family. They love them. Okay, <laughs> got it, got it. They they, they love that. They love their steak. You know, they take the southern and with uh, like a T-bone steak or something. They love it. <laughs> of course, I learned to eat it.
0: So this is a good segue into my global speak question, and you can choose Zimbabwe, Nigeria, you know, yeah. other parts of the world that you've you've lived and worked in. But this is what where we want to hear what you hear. So yeah. I ask my guests to share a word, phrase, or saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value it as global speak.
1: Well, the meaningful value. When I talk of my local experience, I think the, I would call it um, the common value that is common to all the places I have been. Um, I've also been in Bangladesh, which is totally different from totally out of Africa that's in Asia. (laughs) But uh, one thing I've seen is that um, kindness is a common denominator, which everybody welcomes and loves. And I've seen that if you're kind and empathetic to people, it matters not whether you're tall, short, fat, clean, black, white, whatever. Mm. Kindness mm-hmm. is a common denominator that links people together and really brings people together in a way that you can never, ever really uh, fathom. And I, I learned that more from um, when we were in Bangladesh, which is uh, former East Pakistan or years ago. When we were in Bangladesh, I noticed that our cook there, his name was Boroa. Furoa was such a nice man, elderly but very nice. And if you ask Furoa to make you, to boil you mm-hmm. an egg or to make steak or anything at all, he'll ask you, do you want it the Italian way or the British mm-hmm. or the American? So anything he's cooking for you, he has to ask you what style you want it yeah. cooked in. And Puroa was such a nice person. Mm-hmm. When we were coming back to Nigeria, I felt like bringing him back, but that was impossible because he was a company cook for Unilever then, which was my home husband's employer. And then um, even in Zimbabwe too, you know, I remember when we got there for the first time, I didn't have any friend, I didn't know anyone, and I just didn't know what it would be like. But the word kindness again, you know, I just found that um, people were nice and kind and we took to one another, and I still have my friends with him up till now. We still call each other, we WhatsApp each other, and so. On. So I, I think um, kindness is just one common denominator everywhere. Everywhere in the world, even here, you find kind people. Find people, kind people around you who are kind to you. You want to remain their friends, irrespective of tribe or race or culture. So I think kindness is, is the key word. And then one thing I learned from my own dad, my father, he passed on 10 years ago, but one thing I learned from him is he he always told me don't ever quarrel with anyone over money or wealthy goods, you know, fighting over property, money. So that's another lesson of life that I've learned. So kindness and then not uh, taking things Mm. with levity, not putting too much value on Mm it.
0: Keep it light and kind.
1: Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we
0: see. You, you traveled, you're in the field, you've gone to Asia, around Africa, and then you're back in Nigeria and looking for solutions. So how did you come up with or, or gravitate towards the Live Well initiative? What is the genesis of Live Well?
1: Yes, the genesis of Live Well is a very interesting one. You know, we, a friend of mine old me that she lost her sister-in-law who was 44 years old at the time, a young engineer who had a heart attack, and uh, she wasn't even aware that uh, she suffered heart disease, um, and uh, she, she just had a heart attack. Of course, she was hypertensive, but you know, when you talk of heart disease, people are looking at hypertension plus some other complications and so on. So this lady was not aware. And she had a heart attack, and the family was threatening to sue uh, the the clinic and the physician and all that. So I just thought of it that that might have been an avoidable death, and I had come across previous cases of avoidable death. So I said, well, maybe one or two low dose aspirin tablets may have saved that life, you know. And what a waste an engineer, you know. And when you have women who are engineers, they're not as many as the men. So you know that was a very big loss. And, mm-hmm. uh, I felt very bad about it. So I started thinking inwardly that what can one do about avoidable deaths? And then, and because I already had this public health orientation, plus my clinical pharmacy orientation, which is all about therapeutics and getting cure for the best, the best cure for the patient, and then the public health, improving the health of the public. So with all the orientation. I just decided that it just might be right for me to start off an initiative that will promote wellness and help to avoid, you know, avoidable death. And that's how I thought it out. And um, I had gone for a conference in Washington, D.C. where I met the man who was taking away poverty from the poor people in Bangladesh, um, Mm -hmm. Professor Yunus. And um, I, I met him at the World Health Congress in U.S., in Washington, D.C. And um, we had started talking because he introduced me to the African rep who happened to be in Ghana then, and we were communicating, and they wanted me to help them start off an office in Nigeria. So my son just said, why not just start your own? You're talking of this lady who died, and uh, you want to help to reduce or avoid avoidable death. Why not start off your own? And and while discussing with Professor Yunus and his team, I had thought of something that was poverty-related because these programs were poverty-related. And I, I had thought of, I designed something called the Illness Poverty Allegation Program. So we were still discussing, and then my mom said, oh, you designed the Illness Poverty Allegation Program, you know, they call it IPAP, you know. You designed it and you want to start it off with them. It's your it's your intellectual idea. Why don't you start your own thing? Why do you have to take it to someone else? And and so that's how we thought it off and said, okay, let's start an initiative. Mm-hmm. Let's give it a name that people would understand. And uh, and I said Bon Sante, and my son said, no, Bon Sante that's French. People may call it different names. They may say Bosate. They may just change the name and it loses the meaning. Choose, choose a simple word that everybody would understand, and that's how we arrived at Live Well. The, the, the word came from me mm. actually. So and I had the word initiative in right? mind, and that's how we okay arrived.
0: okay Live Well oh.
1: Initiative. So the, with the name came uh-huh. the ready-made program. Yes, with the name came the ready-made program illness, poverty alleviation program. And then we had the executive health uh, enlightenment too, because the lady who passed was an executive, I mean, a, a female engineer. So so we had those programs. even. Mm, from mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's how the idea was born. So then you have this idea and you
0: have an initiative that starts it, but how does that then become a business? How did you go about structuring your board, structuring your... Your funding.
1: <laughs> yes. Okay. Thank you. Actually, um, it, as the idea was born, I started jotting things. I remember that night. I jotted a lot of things. And then um, I lost the piece of paper and I just could not put things together again for a week plus until I found the piece of paper. Luckily, I found it. So immediately I found it. I transcribed everything into my computer. And then, um, so the ideas were already formed. Um, it just came. I, I believe it's also uh, um, with, the, with um, some divine inspiration because I couldn't really think it up again when I didn't find the paper. But once I found the paper, it all came back. And then I started to build up. The, how did we build up the board? I just thought of, uh, I had one or two mentors. We, there was this Swiss uh, lady who had worked in about 30 years, she had been like a mentor to me, so I called her, gave her a call and invited her to join the board, and she immediately accepted, and then um, I called up one or two other people who accepted to join the board, but there was one other person, I called um, an American physician who had also been like a mentor to me, and he said, this will give me six months to think it of. So... Um, he didn't accept immediately, but the others accepted. And I had a Ghanaian uh, colleague, I called him up, he accepted. And so we formed the board uh, with my friend, one um, from Zimbabwe. You know, I told you I did my master's from mm-hmm. Zimbabwe. But my friend in Zimbabwe that I called up was my friend in the management I did an executive management development program, which was like, a, they would tell you it's like an MBA, but it's an MBA for people who are, they wouldn't take you into that program unless you're at the senior managerial level, and they, it was a part-time program. So I ran that program too while I was in Zimbabwe. My friend in that class, she was general manager in a publishing, I and mean, in a multinational publishing firm, Heinemann mm. and then she joined as a board member, she accepted, so I had a Zimbabwean, a Ghanaian, um, and a Swiss citizen on our board, and the others were Nigerian. So seven of us we started off. the. that's how we started, and we did our proper registration. We I looked up; it was a lot of work. I I wanted it to be something like Mayo Clinic or the Kaiser mm. Foundation, so, you know. So I read up. I went online and read up the memos you know, the memorandum and articles of association. And then I called up um, a very popular law firm uh, with whom I had been acquainted in the past. They're, they're very top law firm in Nigeria. And to my greatest surprise and joy, they accepted to um, draw up our memorandum and articles of association for us. I knew I couldn't afford to pay their fees so mm-hmm. they're very expensive. You know, they work with all the embassies and everybody, you know, but we were lucky. They accepted to uh, be our company secretary and uh, legal advisor, and they also accepted to give us pro bono services. And now that we are, this is now 14 years down the line, they are still uh, company secretary and legal advisor, and they still give us the pro bono services. So when people see we law firm on our profile, they know that we are definitely credible for them to be our lawyer. So that's how we could draw up everything. We were able to put everything in place. took a bit of time. We had to draw up a start-off, start-off um, funding and budget and all that. And, of course, start-off everything had to come. I think 100% of the start-off funding came from my purse because the Swiss lady had advised me that we, we should shun donor funds if we wanted to grow. So we did not start off looking for donor funding at all. Um, I had to get money from savings. And uh, it was small, but we were able to start off with that. (laughs) And we also started off with the policy of not looking for donor funding. And uh, we we decided that we would not look for donor funds until we were 10 years old. And uh, I think we were able to achieve that. So we crossed the five-year mark by which time most organizations would be dead. We crossed that. Each year, we had the policy of adding on a new program each year. So we did that for the first five years. And then the Mm -hmm. next five-year tranche, we consolidated and said we wouldn't launch new programs. But we couldn't avoid it. We still ended up launching one or two Mm -hmm. new programs because our programs kept growing. Our programs kept growing and just kept having uh, more and more partners. We work across the corporate sector. Um, we work with partners. We work with uh, uh, multinationals, and uh, and we work with communities. Mm.
0: And so, so you said until so three years ago you were self funded. Yes, we were self funded. Wow, self-funded that's today. quite impressive. So, when when you say self funded, we got our
1: first. Well, we got our first our first grant in 2016, and we started off in 2009. Seven. So that was the 10th okay. year. And it was a, small, a very small grant.
0: But that basically allowed you to set, start to set a track record for other potential donor funds.
1: Yes. But even up till now, we are not really relying on donor funds. We generate our income internally. Mm-hmm. We design programs that we bring in on our area. Like when we run an executive health seminar, we... We ask for area that would not really be like, they're not really charging fees. Mm-hmm. They're not as high as charging commercial fees. Mm-hmm. But we do a lot of barter. So when it's time to purchase products we need, some of them we get them by barter. Like when we go to a community and we want to donate uh, drugs, we want to uh, give patients medicine, we get some of our drugs by donation, so we buy the rest. Mm, okay. So that's the barter I'm talking about. And then when we get drugs donated to us, we also offer barter to the donor. For example, we could offer such a company a free exhibition stand at our health fair and so on. So it's a barter. It's not really free. We're not getting it free. It's it's still value for money. So we do a lot of barters that create shared value across the spectrum. So we we get along Mm -hmm. a lot by creating shared value. So it's a very
0: partnership-based operations model.
1: Yes, -hmm. yes. Mm -hmm. It is a partnership-based operations model. And then we didn't even realize that was what we were doing. We just knew that um, from what our Swiss director advised us, that we should always offer something for whatever we are asking for so that the, the other person is incentivized to work with us. So we did that, and that helped us a lot. Uh, and we always created innovative things. And every year at the end of the year, we would have our year-end event. We would reward the most innovative officer, the most punctual, the most um, hardworking. And so we had things like that in place that kind of incentivized the volunteers. So they always wanted to do better. And then we found that um, we were able to create value across the value chain. And then um, we... I came across Professor Mark Kramer, the, the professor of Harvard, who was the innovator of the creating shared value, the shared value initiative. But we had been doing that even before we came across him. So when we came across the shared value initiative and so on, we just thought that, oh, this is what we've been doing. Now mm-hmm. there's a name to it, mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Got it. Got mm-hmm. it.
0: Makes sense. So we're we in the midst of a global pandemic. And, you know, the stats that I see looking yeah. globally, particularly looking at Africa, I mean, globally, I guess 25% of the, the global population has been vaccinated. And in Africa, I don't believe it's more than 5% of the population. And so thinking public health wise, and we know that vaccines um, typically work, tap especially for childhood diseases that, you know, have been decades and decades long in implementing. We also know that there's generally hesitancy and and within amongst Africans due to Western and colonial practices that were always to some extent, the experimentation was on us Africans. And so looking at your pharmaceutical background, as well as your in the field public health background, my question is, vaccinations versus treatment, particularly around COVID. So tell us what your perspective is. And then I know that you as an organization have done quite a bit around the pandemic necessarily. So tell us more about what your perspective is on that and then some of your activities.
1: Uh, my perspective on uh, vaccination versus treatment is that um, when well, I would say that as a clinical pharmacy practitioner that uh, definitely prevention is better than cure. As such, I would rather um, see vaccination as a prevention, a, a preventive measure. For vaccination alone will not help. So it is a total package mm. which involves vaccination, non-pharmaceutical methods of prevention, that is masking, using the sanitizer, hand washing, physical distancing, and so on. All of that as one package. Vaccination as one package. And then the third one, which mostly Africans use, the steam inhalation, which many, I, I'm not sure they use it in the West, but many Africans use that because the, the coronavirus is very, very sensitive to heat. So steam inhalation, non pharmaceutical method, and vaccination. I think that is the answer to it. Having said that, within the Live Well Initiative here, We have a set of study protocols that we put in place for COVID-19 response. It may sound a bit selfish. We actually called it um, our study protocols for COVID-19 response in Africa. But the reason why we put the African title there is that we felt that Africa would not be able to afford the big um, money that would be needed for the Mm -hmm. vaccines. And so we felt, well, if Africa does not have the Mm -hmm. vaccine, what can Africa use? We didn't foresee that the vaccines would be donated that Mm -hmm. quickly. Uh, And even now that they've been donated, like Mm -hmm. you said, less than 5% of Africans have had access to the Mm -hmm. vaccine. So we we are still working on the mindset Mm -hmm. that without vaccines, what do you do? So without vaccines, adhere to the non-pharmaceutical protocol, hand washing wearing your mask, and using your sanitizer, physical distancing. And then we also believe very much in the steam inhalation. But in addition to that, and with my background in clinical family, we form the clinical research team where we believe in repurposing old medicines that have been proven to have action on some of these viruses. In particular, the 4-aminoquinolines We got um, the uh, Health Systems Research and ethics Committee approval. We got an approval from Ogu State in Nigeria, and also from Oyo State in Nigeria. And so the Oyo State Isolation Center in Nigeria is actually using our study protocol. So you can call it a, well, we may not call it a full clinical trial because it's not approved at the national level, but at the state level, they are running clinical trials by using these protocols. And um, the unique thing is that not one life has been lost since they started uh, using these protocols since March last year when they started. And the, they are, our clinical research team is an 18-man team. I imagine as the leader of that team, I'm not a professor, but I imagine as the leader of the team, we have four professors on our team. And the team lead for the Oyo State, who is the professor. He's the field a principal field investigator. He's a professor and past chief medical director in the tertiary health institution. And then he his team actually generates the data. They are the ones at the isolation center directly taking care of the patients. They even had a 91-year-old patient. For that patient did not pass. The patient spent 22 days on admission, which was the longest length of stay we have had. We sent out our articles, our manuscripts for publication. We published some of the preliminary data. Now we sent out our very first full script, and the scientific open access journal has accepted it for publication when it is published. we will give it some publicity, I'll let you know. Uh, so, and we just last week, I was so happy because uh, I received some good news that we have another 600 and something data, data set from PCR positive tested clients who are also treated at the isolation center and they've all been discharged there well. And now that there's a third uh, a, a wave, which is Delta variant data, Fresh data is now being collected for the Delta variant, but it is still this set of protocols that they are using. The protocol contains several medicines for aminoquinolines, for repurposing In a staggered step, like a step care, you know, you start from step one and you escalate it to step four, uh, using different four aminoquinolines depending on what the patient has presented with. So we've recorded great success and we want to publish the work. So that's the work we're doing in the clinical area as far as COVID-19 is concerned. In the non-clinical area, we have gone into communities, we have done food resilience programs. Last year, we matched World Humanitarian Day with a very big, huge food resilience program for people in a poor, blighted area where we run a health post. And um after the food resilience, to, to sustain the the COVID resilience in that community. We have been uh, giving them free uh, treatment in that health since February this year, up to date till today. And then we are also taking care of pregnant women, the children, we deworm the children regularly. And then we want to, we have been screening pregnant women for viral hepatitis. And we we have a, a protocol in place where when the women go and have their babies with the traditional birth attendants, because the very, very low district community, very poor community, we what we do for our pro-poor response is to make sure that we follow and monitor the women to make sure that once they've had their babies, they take their babies within 24 hours to the uh, government health center nearby to get the birth dose vaccination for hepatitis B. And we also... Uh, provide them with other vaccines. We work in partnership with government, so the primary health care board sends us nurses who work with our own nurses to make sure that the babies are immunized and the pregnant women, we offer antenatal care for them. But we don't take deliveries because we don't have the facility. There's no one sponsoring us. If we had a sponsor, we are willing to expand the services to start taking deliveries. We have two gynae doctors on standby. But there is no facility where they can we can take the leave. We have several not midwives. We have uh, you know in all we are over eight hundred volunteers in live well initiative, of which uh, up to hundred of us are physicians with different qualifications, and we have specialists among them. We have over hundred families, too, and the nurses are well over hundred, maybe about 150 nurses. But the largest number are the public health practitioners we have over two hundred.
0: Wow. Patients. Thanks for joining us for part one of my conversation with Ada BC Bright. Please be sure to come back next week for another episode where BC talks more about their work in communities and health policy across Africa. As always, you can catch us with a new episode each and every Tuesday at www.glocalcitizenspod.com or wherever you get your podcasts do us a favor, share, subscribe, leave us a rating, and we will be happy to return the favor with continued wonderful content. So until next time, be safe and bye for now.